You got it. That's good. Yes, thank you. Good morning. I have all these adjustments that I have to make, but they make them for me. Isn't that great? It's a great morning, isn't it? It's a great morning because you're here and God's here. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses this morning uh, from uh, Acts uh, chapter 2, and then uh, we'll go to prayer. Uh, The first four verses of Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. My name is Joe, and I'm an elder here at North Shore, and I'm also blessed to be uh, a person who has been saved by grace. And uh, so let's just uh, bow together now, and we'll have a word of prayer. Merciful Father, God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We ask your forgiveness for not having loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. Your Holy Spirit reveals truth to us of the scriptures and guides our understanding. Father, you've been good to North Shore Church, keeping the doors open for those who seek you. You have blessed our ministry teams and community groups with spiritual growth. Father, we call on you to encourage our men this weekend at their retreat to become spiritual leaders of their families. Lord Jesus, we thank you for caring and supporting our brothers and sisters who struggle with health issues. (coughs) Father, we ask you to bless Pastor Archer for being today's message, and we continue to honor you with our praise. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come back again. Obviously, uh, or hopefully, I didn't mess things up in previous times that I've been here. Uh, But it is wonderful to come and to be able to share God's Word with you uh, as He has taught me some things uh, as well. Uh, Many of you know I'm a law enforcement chaplain, so it just seems kind of fitting to start things out with a, a chaplain story. But... This is a very old military chaplain story. So, in 1945, World War II had drawn to a close, and a young man sat broken inside a POW camp. Now, he'd been a reluctant soldier in Hitler's army, and here inside a prison in Scotland, he had months to contemplate what had been and, and what was to come. The cities of his homeland had been reduced to rubble, the people impoverished, sleep was filled with repeating nightmares, 
in which the terrors of warfare were lived over and over and over and over. And then came what was for him the worst of all. In September of 1945, in Camp 22 in Scotland, he was confronted with pictures of Belsen and Auschwitz. They were pinned up in one of the huts without comment. Slowly the truth filtered into his awareness, and he saw himself mirrored in the eyes of the Nazi victims. The depression over the wartime destruction and the captivity without any apparent end was exacerbated by feelings of profound shame and having to share in this disgrace. That was undoubtedly the hardest thing. It was a stranglehold that choked him. An unshakable shame saturating his being. And the only future he could see stretched out him before him was one that filled him with utter despair. Yet, it was in the midst of this shame and despair that God found him, or he found God. A visiting chaplain gave the soldier a Bible, and with little else to do, he began reading it. In the Lament Psalms, he heard resonant voices, the agony of people who felt God had abandoned him. In the story of Christ crucified, he encountered a God who knew what it was to experience suffering, abandonment, for him, shame. Feeling utterly forsaken himself, the German soldier found a friend in the one who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In 1947, he was given permission to attend a Christian conference that brought together young people from across the world, and the Dutch participants asked to meet with the German POWs who, who had fought in the Netherlands. Well, the young soldier was one of them, and he went to the meeting, but he was full of fear. He was full of guilt and shame, and, and these feelings intensified as the Dutch Christians spoke of the pain that Hitler and his allies, him, had inflicted, of the dread that Gestapo bred in their hearts, of the family and friends that they'd lost, of the disruption and the damage to their community. Yet the Dutch Christians didn't speak out of a spirit of vindictiveness, but came to offer forgiveness. It was completely unexpected. These Dutch Christians embodied the love the German soldier had read about in the story of Christ, and it turned his life upside down. He discovered, despite all that he had, had passed, God looking on us with the shining eyes of his eternal joy that there was a hope for him. Well, that German soldier was Jürgen Moltmann. I don't expect any to recognize that name. I had to look it up. But he would go on to become one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Years later, with the message of the loving, crucified God still indelibly printed on his heart, he penned these beautiful words. But the ultimate reason for our hope 
is not to be found in all, at all in what we want, wish for, or wait for. The ultimate reason is that we are wanted and wished for and waited for. What is it that awaits us? Does anything await us at all, or are we alone? Whenever we base our hope on trust in the divine mystery, we feel deep down in our hearts there is someone who is waiting for you, who is hoping for you, and who believes in you. We are waited for as the prodigal son is waited for by his father. We are accepted and received as a mother takes her children into her arms and comforts them. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. Now I want to talk a bit today about the hope of the gospel. More importantly, the hope to be found in a gospel saturated community. There's an epidemic happening in our society and in other cultures around the world by, by various reasons. And from some recent studies and articles, what's being called deaths of despair have been on a rapid increase. Okay, these, these deaths, whether they're you know, from drugs, alcohol, suicide, whatever, they've reached a record high today. Loneliness and social isolation are epidemic. And as one report attests, can be as damaging to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Kind of interesting. But I'm, I'm reminded, um, yet again, that the light shines brightest in the darkness. The greatest need of our day is for the great light of the genuine gospel-infused community that only Christianity, saturated with all that Jesus is, offers to a despairing and suicidal world. Okay, what I want to delve in today is, is community. Not, not a pseudo-uniformity. Uniformity is often forced or enforced sameness or conformity, but Com-unity happens when we find common cause in a common foundation, a common purpose, and a common future together. And the greatest cause, foundation, purpose, future, is found within a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who made us for himself, to be a people, a people together for himself, and co-heirs with himself, not just individuals belonging to him alongside each other, but what does this look like? In Acts, we see this people coming together. People who heard the apostles teaching about this Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was the image of the invisible God. He was in human form. He'd come to save us from our congenital and self-induced forever destruction. So we begin in Acts 2, starting in verse 36, where Peter, um, as we heard in the, the, the opening passages of Acts, uh, the one who previously denied Jesus to a servant girl is now speaking boldly to a crowd 
in the streets, in Jerusalem, with the threat of death looming from the religious and the Roman leaders. Imagine that. Afraid of a servant girl. Now, something happened in Peter's life. Well, Peter's getting to the climax of his sermon in Acts 2, starting in verse 36. Feel free to follow along in that. I kind of breeze pretty quick, but here we go. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying things like, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How many of you have been part of a crusade uh, in the past, or some huge evangelistic event? And, yeah, like you know, maybe a Billy Graham crusade, or uh, promise keepers even. I mean, it's pretty exciting. I mean, to just be there, when hundreds or, or a thousand or more people are being convicted and drawn and humbled, renewed, and being set free by the power of God through the message of the Son and the work of the Spirit. It's truly amazing. <clears throat> and so, so are the other smaller events too, where one person comes forward after a message on Sunday or a co-worker responds to Jesus after a, a conversation, or a child understands the impl implications of the message and wants that relationship with Jesus as well. No less miraculous, no less exciting in heaven either, as there is a cosmic celebration for each and every person whom God draws into relationship with himself and a person steps from death to life in Christ. But unfortunately, <clears throat> too often after the initial celebration, <clears throat> oftentimes there are the sounds of crickets. Or there's maybe some level of relationship with another believer. There are Sunday gatherings possibly small group studies and the like. But as our topic will show, we too often miss out on the next steps of what this new relationship is to give us. Community. Being a community. I mean, we do okay gathering together with a community, but not so good at being in community with each other. Well, what's the difference? What does being in Christ's Christian community look like? Well, later, after Peter spoke and thousands were coming to Christ and into the fellowship of the believers to be with each other, 
we find this community in action starting to flesh out, and we could say also spirit out as well. And Acts 2.42 is our main passage today. And it says, and they devoted themselves. Okay, so after Peter preached, and they came to know Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They, they devoted themselves. This here means they were focused exclusively and passionately on. Now imagine with me, what is something that you have been regularly focused exclusively and passionately on? Just think for a minute. The, the Packers? For some of you, I don't know, Bears? Or some other off teams somewhere? A video game? Books? Maybe a TV show? How about hunting or fishing? Get real serious. How about an addiction? Alcohol, food, drugs, maybe to another person. Maybe it's your work. See, not all of that is bad in their proper seasons and for short times. But is there one thing in your life where it is evident that you are focused exclusively or passionately on that defines who you are? This is the level of focus, the level of devotion that's being described here with the new believers and the new church. They were devoted to four things. Four specific things are described here of, a, of the first Christian community that we need to take note of. Because these four things are what characterized a group of people who changed the world. These four things are why these people had power and authority over demons, the world's cultures and rulers and authorities. These are four activities that they were committed to with each other because of their relationship with and their love for Jesus Christ. These four commitments were the earliest church's highest priorities. And these four commitments or devotions are set off by four definite articles. And these four definite articles change the world. So notice again, there are four, four definite articles in this passage. It is the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The is the definite article. Okay, so each is present in the original Greek writings, uh, and these definite articles show us that the Christian's unity was not found in individualistic, preferential experiences, but they were found in the collective, shared, experienced, and working out spirituality among them. Now, how many of you have been to an NFL game? or some big event like that. 
All right. I've been to a few um, other events like that, but one thing that stands out to me about, about these events, it is way more comfortable to watch the game from my recliner in my home with my food and with a blanket over me than it is to be at the actual event or even at a party for the event with other people in their home with their fridge. Now, I like parties, don't get me wrong. But it's not my recliner. It's not my fridge. It's not my cupboards. But the other truth that we miss out on is that while sitting in my recliner by myself is the whole atmosphere of the event. That This communal atmosphere is so attractive that even though I don't care to watch a lick of baseball on TV, it's kind of like watching paint dry to me, I love being at the ballpark with friends, <clears throat> eating hot dogs, being a part of the sounds and the excitement and the camaraderie and all that happens there. It's, it's fun. Who are those guys out there? <laughs> Wait, who, who's pitching? What's his name? <clears throat> okay. Well, there's a difference between watching something from a distance, whether, whether it's a physical or emotional distance, versus being a part of something big. Imagine now the difference for the people who are actually playing the game. <coughs> Sorry, I'm not used to speaking twice <laughs> back to back. So, um, You know, this, there's a whole level of community there for the guys who are actually in the, in the game. All right, well, let's look at the four elements. The four commitments of devotion of Acts 2.42 individually for a moment. They devoted themselves to, what's the first one? All right. This was the public preaching of the first Christian leaders. The teachings of the apostles, the first disciples. Whether the teachings were in person or later on passed on from them. So these were the teachings and the stories <clears throat> and the relaying of the, uh, the information that these 11 men, and later Paul and Luke and uh, James and Judas, the brothers of Jesus, would be included, things that they saw and heard <clears throat> while they were with Jesus. And as we're told, what the Spirit taught them later and, and brought to their minds, as Jesus said in the end of Luke 24, <clears throat> then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. <clears throat> then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. (coughs) My apologies. And behold... I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay into this, in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. 
All right, so <clears throat> with that, they are given the Holy Spirit. They're given the power of the Holy Spirit to remind them of everything that they were taught. And he continued to teach them and speak through them new things as well. That's where we get our Bible from. Matter of fact, some of the apostles' teachings led by the Spirit were written down and preserved for the future generations, us, to know what God has revealed to the world. <coughs> Just like Paul wrote about the Old Testament being written, that the Old Testament was not just for the people of their time, the Old Testament people's time. It was for his and for future generations. So they would know the Messiah when he came, and so they would know God's previous words and revelations in the past. And then the apostles wrote down some of their knowledge as well. Even to the point that Peter called Paul's writings, while Paul was still alive, Scripture. The apostles' teachings were considered scriptures to the believers at the time that they were written down. And the people devoted themselves <clears throat> together to these teachings, to these teachers. They came under their teachings. They submitted their lives and their living to the teachings. And where their life conflicted with the teachings... They confess their sin. They confess their wrong beliefs. They changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they were focused exclusively and passionately on the Word of God as the apostles showed from the Old Testament who Jesus is and why He came and died. And as they revealed to them from their time with Jesus uh, what He said, and, and also from what the Holy Spirit spoke through them. Now, <clears throat> do you view your getting together and the Bible like that? Would you say that your passion as a member of the body of Christ, a church, is to get together with other believers, to pour over what the Word says, to learn from it, to be convicted by it, to be changed by it and to make radical changes in your lives because of it. And then also to encourage each other by speaking it to each other. Is your passion to learn it so that everything else in life is measured up against it and shaped by it as it is spoken to you from other believers? A biblical church is marked by the people, the believers, getting together and being devoted to and rooted in and saturated with biblical teaching. <clears throat> now the second thing they were focused exclusively and passionately on was the fellowship, which refers to the larger public community of faith. <clears throat> now, what I want to note here is it doesn't say devoted to fellowshipping with each other. 
which is an old word meaning spending good time with each other. But this passage says that they were devoted to the fellowship. What does this mean? Now, we definitely know it includes fellowshipping with each other. But it's much more than that. They were devoted to the group, the people of the church, the community of believers. They were their people. They were their now family. They were together the body of Christ, the the bride of Christ, the temple of, of God. That's who, who they were. That's, that's what they did. Each person being a part of the building, an, an equally attached appendage of the body, a, 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 a co-member of the entire and local family of God, co-heirs with Christ of everything that is God's. And it takes each and every one to be the body of Christ. <clears throat> Have any of you played Jenga? Familiar with that? I love that game. All right, it's a, it's a b- bunch of sticks, blocks of wood, and they're solidly put together in a tower with each piece touching all the others around them and to make it stable. All right, so the idea of the game is, is to each take turns taking a block out of the tower to start to destabilize the tower for the next person, so that at some point, the tower will just fall down on the loser who took out the one piece. (coughs) That one piece that was left holding the tower together. I think that game is a good representation of the body of Christ. One person missing or disconnected, though it doesn't cause the structure to fall, still destabilizes the structure in God's economy. Thank you. Take too many out, and the whole body falls apart. One person with unconfessed sin, though they may not destroy the church, but many who are devoted to themselves or their sins does hinder and even destroy the church. So what does devoted to the fellowship mean? What does it look like? They committed to a commonly shared life. These followers of Jesus created a a new and a close community within the city that they lived as they lived out a life of supporting and encouraging each other. And the idea of of fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia, can embrace both a a spiritual communion as in Philippians 2.1, which says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a lot of sharing of everything here. Minds, hearts, ambitions, humility, the Spirit, love, agreement. Well, their fellowshipping also included a material sharing with each other. Second Corinthians eight four. <clears throat> For in a severe test of affliction, <clears throat> their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now this word sharing is the same word for fellowship, koinonia. The Greek text in Acts 2.42 literally says the fellowship, which highlights the special concern for one another that these followers of Jesus had for each other. Well, such concern is noted later in verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Wow, that's devotion. Acts 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And there was great power. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Holy smoke. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, do we realize that you are the key to having this kind of relationship with each other? It's not the person sitting next to you, it's you, it's me. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you can experience this kind of relationship with the fellowship of believers in this very church if you're not already doing so. The next two items they were focused on exclusively and passionately on, that they were devoted to, kind of go hand in hand because they're both included in worship. The breaking of bread, 
which originally refers to the public communal meal, a meal. And in the context of the teaching and the fellowship, it points to a supper, specifically what we now call the Lord's Supper and worship. The other item is the prayers, which refers to the regular times of public confession, public thanksgiving. This is something we miss out on uh, a lot. And getting together regularly for intercession with and for each other. See, originally when they met for the Lord's Supper, it was a Passover meal that was changed to now represent Jesus' sacrifice for sins and not the Lamb's sacrifice to save them from the angel of death in Exodus. It was a meal, not just bread and wine. Now, it's okay that it's now just bread and juice, but what we miss out on with this is that that, our communion time only takes like 10 minutes to observe. Instead of sharing a meal together, fellowshipping with each other over a meal that reminds us of the whole reason that we're together in the first place. Which is also kind of why the term breaking bread together means enjoying an intimate meal with others. So the early Christians regularly and often shared meals with each other. And as part of those meals, as often as they shared those meals, they ate it together in remembrance of him. And then they had the prayers. Now, prayer is absolutely vital to the church. This was also a main theme all throughout Acts and the other apostles' teachings. And, <clears throat> and with the definite article attached here, the prayers, it wasn't just to praying with each other, the prayers. It most likely referred to regular scheduled times of getting together for the purpose of praying. Like in Acts 3.1, where it says Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It wasn't the only hour of prayer they had. But the definite article could, could also refer to specific prayers and psalms and scripture that they would pray over each other and with each other. As well as certain topics that they would pray for every time they got together. They were serious about prayer. One could say they were focused exclusively and passionately on prayer as they knew it to be their lifeline to the Father through the Lord Jesus. Now, I find that in our culture, we've largely lost the practice of eating regularly together. We're too busy. We're too tired. We're not people persons. Or we don't want to bother others with our children. Or we don't want to be bothered by others' children. Or any other reason we could possibly come up with. Because it's not as comfortable as sitting in my recliner. I like my recliner. But the thing is, we, we buy into these cultural lies that life has done more easily or better alone. We often neglect prayer way too often. Because maybe we find it boring. 
or we don't know what to pray. Or we feel awkward praying in front of others because of certain fears to which I say all of those reasons are from the pit. What that says uh, of us is that we either do not really believe in God, as the Scriptures describe Him, or we do not believe that He's all that concerned about our lives, or we don't really believe that He's all-powerful. Or maybe He won't be concerned about our small concerns compared to running the universe. All those are lies. Lies that the evil one really wants you to hold on to dearly so that we individually and together will never be mightily used by God or never obtain the true joy that we're promised when we saturate ourselves in him and in his word with each other. These four commitments made to be worked out in public community That empowered the first Christians to change the trajectory of hundreds of millions, even billion or more people throughout history. And with that brings a unity that runs right through social and cultural differences, racial animosities, gender biases, overlord and underling relationships, and the scourge of social isolation in our nation. Such unity, it reflects the nature of of our God and of the humans He created to be like Him. Our Lord experiences eternal community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that relationship, He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Referring to humanity. Such a unity like that in community was at the heart of Jesus' ministry as he called Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, prostitutes, Pharisees, priests, tax collectors, men and women, children into his movement, into a co-relationship with him, into the healing and joy-filled and restful relationship of who he is. I mean, it was at the heart of the church's expanding ministry as, as he included Jew and Greek and slave and free, male and female. And it will be at the heart of our eternal worship in heaven <clears throat> where we will gather with a great multitude <clears throat> from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, But, unfortunately, I think many, if not all of us, can attest, we've bought into the current and growing consumeristic, individualistic, pseudo-Christianity that reflects, again, our consumeristic and individualistic culture. North American Christianity is very different from the rest of the world. But as we read in Revelation, there's no silos or solos in Christianity or in the church. Jesus promised in Matthew 18:20, where two or three are gathered in my name, 
there am I among them. And such community is what empowers our witness, our service, our very souls. So, another question. With whom are you regularly and often sharing godly unity in community? With whom are you regularly pouring over Scripture in an accountable fellowship of worship and intercession and changing hearts and attitudes and actions? If you take a coal from the fire, it goes out. If a burning coal touches others, it stays lit. How aflame is your soul today? So, now back to the studies that I mentioned at the outset. Our culture is in the process of eating itself alive as more and more individuals are buried in their cell phones with their earphones on. We tend to sit at home now and chat online or text or any number of apps that let us toss verbiage back and forth, but with not much actual meaning, face-to-face, quality affection, spending time with each other. Now, I use all those things, not against all those things. But we're increasingly using social media to be anything but social. We use it to throw out a commitment or a comment or, or a criticism. We throw out pics of what we're enjoying. And not, not all of this is bad, by the way. But studies are showing that the younger generations are increasingly buried in these things. And as they get older, they're still living in their parents' basements. Or they have a floor to themselves. And they're not growing up socially or economically. And we, the older generations, have led the way toward that isolation. Or have been letting that happen. So now, according to many new studies, as if we need yet another study, we, we have a generation of a world where isolation is at its all-time highest. And with that social isolation comes pain and depression, and then comes escapes from pain, and then addictions, and now an epidemic of suicides across the nation and in many other parts of the world. People so alone, without hope, without knowledge, without love, without truth, that they've reached the only right conclusion that if there is no God and if no one really cares or they feel trapped because the world is going to burn up in about 12 years or because they broke up with the only person they believe they will ever be able to be in love with or their teachers are telling them that they're random mistakes of nature and there's no concrete morality or someone who calls himself God that actually exists and any number of things, they come to the only concrete conclusion that there's nothing to really live for. And they bury these feelings under mountains of drugs, alcohol, 
food, the adrenaline rushes from games, improper sex, pornography, and then they entertain committing suicide because what else is there? Without God, without a community to to share the deepest aspects of life with, what else is there? Just one snippet from one of the reports I read says, together, rising death rates from suicide, alcohol, and drug overdose contribute to the recent decline in average life expectancy at birth in the United States. At the same time, access to mental health services in several states is getting worse, and cost of care is preventing many adults from seeking treatment that would potentially stem increases in deaths from substance abuse and suicide. According to Mental Health America, more than 24 million just Americans who are experiencing mental health issues are going untreated. Those are the reported ones. Could be three to four times higher. So what's the answer to our culture's epidemic, our epidemic of societal depression and this craving of release and death? Gospel community. A gospel community. Living together as we were designed for. Experiencing life with each other regularly, not, not just meeting once a week to, for a study and then having little to no contact with each other the rest of the week, but being devoted to each other, being focused exclusively and passionately on each other, gathering together to listen to the Word, to dig into it with each other, Not for more knowledge that we won't do anything with, but so that we'll be challenged by it and changed by it with each other and that we can challenge and comfort each other with that word. The second, gathering together for the purposes of accountability. Again, relationship. Lifting each other to serve each other when and where needed, to make sure no one among us is in permanent need and has what they need to at least get by and to do all the other 52 plus one another things with each other. And they gather together to worship, to eat together. You know, that's part of worship. To celebrate God's provisions together. Namely, the provision of himself for the payment of our sins that we remember through the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup as we remember his broken body and his blood shed for us. And we gather together for prayer. To pray for certain things, to to pray through Scripture with each other, to pray for each other, to pray for the lost in our nation and our rulers and our neighbors and against our sin and our loneliness to pray for the Lord's return and, <clears throat> and for His actions to be fleshed out in and through us, together, 
to those around us who also know Jesus and for those who don't yet know Him. It's way past time. It's way past time for the church to be the powerhouse of the Spirit again. To be the vehicle of His grace, His mercy, companionship, salvation to this truly increasingly lost and not just dying world, but to a world, that, world that's literally killing themselves because they have no meaningful connections in their lives. And they have no hope of anything better than death because they've not met Him yet, which means they've not met Him through you yet. And I beg you, to know that you have that hope in you. You have the only answer for this world and for eternity to come. Instead of oblivion and nothingness, you have a true message of hope and meaning being saturated in the message and truth of the Gospel. The good news of the power and the love of Jesus Christ. And to that, I just want to tell each of us, live that out boldly, daily with each other. Be ready to stand amazed regularly at what God will do through you, church. Let's pray. Father, on one hand, I want to say we need you. but I already know you've given yourself to us. And so, Lord, I ask, would you please help us to remove the barriers in our own lives that keep you from living through us in power? God, help us to be devoted to the right things. Help us to live life with each other regularly. And I even say this to myself, to to keep getting out of that recliner and go spend that time with others. To bring you into that relationship. To bring your power into that relationship. Your words into those relationships whether it's encouraging fellow believers or whether it's bringing a new and fresh hope to somebody who has no hope. And Lord, as we've seen this morning, that is an increasing number of people in our nation and our world. Lord, help us not just to be individual who are a part of your body. Help us to be your body, really, as you designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close today um, singing a song that was new last week. So if you guys want to stand and sing with us, um, if you weren't here last week, you will catch on. It's a pretty great song.